right, Paul. So finally, something goes our way with this endless persecution from everywhere. Um, you know, whoever's doing this, it, it finally they ran up against the wall. They tried to call you a fraud, uh, basically implicating all of us as frauds. And guess what happened? It didn't work. So what did you hear, Paul? Yeah, so I think this is a major breakthrough and a major development, you know, for me personally, for you as well as my big supporter, for FLCCC, who, who really have supported me through this. And I think the bottom line is the truth will always prevail. It's just sometimes very difficult to fight back because we were fighting against enormous forces. And there's no question they were determined to take us down. They were determined to take me down. They were determined to basically, basically implicate that my study was scientific fraud. It was made up data. And therefore the implications would be that every other paper that I've written is fraudulent. I mean, that would have been the inference that, you know, if I had made up this data and I had fabricated this data, so if I'd done it once, well, that's maybe, maybe I'd done that throughout my entire career. So in fact, my, my whole professional career, my professional integrity was at stake and that failed. And so, you know, to some degree, I must give Chess the credit because although the, the claims were so outlandish and so bizarre and just so extreme, they actually took due diligence. They went through the process, and in the end, they came to the correct conclusion. So I think Chess drew a line in the sand and said, you know what, we'll look at this because we can't be politically pressurized. Yeah. And so I do give them credit. And I think this speaks to the whole attack on vitamin C on repurposed drugs. No question, Paul. I mean, let's just let's recap. I mean, we've had two papers retracted in COVID already. And now they were going after a third. And this was going to be a twofer because, like you said, it would destroy your and by extension, my credibility. And that's and it would go after two things. Right. It would further tarnish our work on ivermectin, and then it's going to take down vitamin C. And this is what they do. They go after any therapies that do not present huge profit margins for them. And for those scientists who are proponents of using those therapies, they'll stop at nothing. And and then let's just, you know, finish by saying, you know, Chess, you're right. The other two journals, those editors, they had absolutely no uh, courage or morals to understand that these were unfair allegations, and they let our papers get retracted. Test actually investigated, and they could find no evidence of any ethical concerns in your study or your conduct. And that should be clear. When you got that letter yesterday and you called me, I mean, well, you broke into tears because literally this is your career. It's all the work that you've done. I mean, was threatened, your whole credibility, everything you stand for, and they were ready to take that down. And it's it, it, it's absolutely not only maddening, but it's really sad that I mean, they're taking out good people and they don't care. And so yeah. let's just finish, Paul, and just say, listen, we this way we can move forward. We have our credibility intact. And I think those of us who support us will continue to. And we got more work to do together, my man. Right. We are yeah. going to. We are going to talk so, about Yeah, You know, there is one piece of this puzzle that, you know, unfortunately, the healthcare system that I worked at, the healthcare system that I saved patients, this healthcare system that I devoted my career to, were responsible for these false allegations. And I think in this current environment, 
the healthcare systems and the status quo are going to go after us. And I think this is a lesson that we have to do whatever we can to push back and fight because the, the, the integrity of science is at stake and the, uh, the, the core of medicine is at stake. It's patients' lives that are at stake. This is about patients and this is about patient care. Nope. Well, Paul, I'm just glad, man. We're, we're going to keep going. Um, even if they're taking this paper away from us, we'd still keep going. And I think our supporters would still trust in us. And But, you know, I, I think this is important because I like what you just said. Patients' lives are at stake. I mean, I, I, Paul, you don't, you're not going to argue me with this, but the integrity of science is that's been gone now for a while. That's what we've discovered. And, but you know what, there are some of us who still want to try to uphold that integrity. And I would, I would say chess did that in this instance. And, you know, um, it, it restores a little bit of faith and trust that there are good people out there trying to be fair and objective. Yeah. And you know what, I think at the same time, we have to acknowledge the people who stood behind us because it's our supporters, the FLCC family, it's um, Kelly, it's Alan, it's Zora, it's these really good people who helped us, defended us, and supported us, because without them, we wouldn't have had this outcome. Thank God for the FLCCC. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Science won this one. Integrity won. The brilliant work of Dr. Paul Merrick finally got the validation that it deserves, that he deserves. The people who tried to destroy his reputation failed when an honest examination by independent scientists proved Dr. Merrick right. All this man has ever done from the very beginning is try to be the best doctor, the finest scientist to try to save lives, period. And people around the world, doctors around the world will tell you he's one of the finest teachers of medicine. Well, he's not trying to sell anybody's expensive new drug like some other people we know. Well, Paul, congratulations. Just come on out here. Come on out here. I mean, this is just so wonderful, such good news. You really deserved it, and um, wow, <laughs> just wow. I mean, thinking on it, it's now been a few hours since you got that message. How do you feel? Yeah, <clears throat> thanks, Betsy. Yeah, it, it feels, it's vindication, because as you know, um, we've been attacked now. I mean, this this has been going on for years. They. The, the vicious attack by my healthcare system has been going on for four or five years and this COVID insanity, you know, has been going on three years. But, you know, at least we have a win. And I think it shows that, it, that we have to fight back. We, we can't just let them take over. You know, integrity, honesty, science must prevail. And... Um, we have to fight on. And that's why we have one of the world's best fighters with us today. Yes, um, yes. um, he, he's a man that epitomizes standing for human rights, for freedom, for humanity. And that's why it's such a joy to have him here. And what makes it even special, he's a South African. I and, know. <laughs> well, you're just so, 
You know what? He's such a special man, and it's so so great to have him here. So, Betsy, won't you introduce him for us, please? Well, I'd be happy to. Um, you said some of the some of the things that I was going to point out because, uh, well, he's known as a person who has fought for years for what is right and true. Uh, he's also someone who has access to data that has been censored in this country, who sees the science of the COVID crisis as our esteemed doctors do, humanitarians all, because we're going to welcome tonight an elder statesman, a former activist and former cabinet minister in Nelson Mandela's government in South Africa, who tells the world that he now speaks as a grandfather. And that's a very important role. Welcome, Jay Naidu. It is an honor to have you with us tonight. And tell us, you know, how you get through all the kind of trouble and persecution that you suffered for years and years and years that our doctors are going through. It's just, um, I mean, I, you know how, you know what life is like and you succeeded in a big way. So we are, we're thrilled to have you here with us. Well, thank you, Betsy. It's a great honor to be here. And Paul, my fellow citizen and still country of, from your country of birth. So uh, good evening to you and congratulations to you. You know, when there's a victory like this, we all claim the victory and it inspires us to greater heights. So <clears throat> when you've been persecuted in such a way, Paul, as you know from the history of the country you were born in, then that persecution is an acknowledgement that you exist, that you are a human being, and that you represent a threat, but that's the thrill of life. We are here to celebrate life and not to be slaves. You know, we have a soul, we have a spirit. We aspire to be free. We aspire to escape the limitations of our mind, of this body even, you know, because we are, you know, so much greater than, uh, than what we as seem to understand ourselves. The, the full human potential of life cannot be unrestrained, restrained in any way. It's limitless. And, and that, that is what I think this new tyranny is about. It's not just taking away our physical freedoms as we understand, but it's trying to sub, you know, subjugate us to a new form of slavery. And I think that every political cell in my body is saying, hey, enough. Let's just pause. Let's just reflect on what's happened in the last three years and think about in the context where the, there is no emergency, let's reflect on the data and let's allow, like your case, an independent assessment of the data onto whether this COVID injection is safe or effective. That's a very reasonable uh, demand that billions of people are making, particularly those who are suffering from vaccine injuries. And I, can, I cannot find a single family that I know across all the networks I know that has not suffered a vaccine injury. Surely as human, humanity, we should pause 
and reflect on the situation and put in the focus, like you said, Paul, the patience. That is what the Hippocratic Oath is about. The foundation of the medical profession is a commitment to do no harm. If there's even a suggestion of harm, then we should pause and allow a study by independent people. And I cannot believe the way in which this was orchestrated across the world, a lockdown that was not needed, masking that even has been proven cannot stop a virus from reaching you. And the, you know, the craziness of wearing a mask, going into a restaurant, and then sitting down and taking off the mask. I mean, even the most basic understanding of virology will show that that's absolute nonsense. And then the social distancing, which all scientifically have now been proven to be not effective, but has caused the loss of millions of jobs. And the fact that, you know, people's businesses, their survival, their jobs, have been destroyed because of the way in which the pandemic response was handled. So yes, I'm here with y'all and I congratulate all of y'all for taking a stand, not just for yourselves, but for your children, for your grandchildren and for those to, that are still to be born. So thank you for inviting me. So Jay, um, for you, this is like a, a, a deja vu because you were born in apartheid. You know what lack of, you know, loss of freedom is. You know what persecution is. And you stood up to it. And it seems like this is now a recurrence. You know, we, we're facing the same kind of discrimination, the inhumanity. People may be interested in your story. I mean, I find your story fascinating. You want to tell us how you know, as a 16-year-old kid, you, you heard um, Steve Biko speak, and that inspired you, because it is an inspiring story, and many people may not know who who the late Steve Biko is. And so, just so people know, Jay is, is he, he worked with um, Nelson Mandela. He was a great leader. He's a humanitarian. But I think most of all, he, as he says, he's a grandfather. He's an elder. He cares about people and he cares about the planet that he's going to leave his children and grandchildren. And I think that's that's what's just so important is that, you know, we have to preserve some kind of legacy for our kids. Well, thanks very much, Paul. You know, the story begins a bit earlier because when I was four years old, we were evicted from our house and, and every question I asked my parents was not answered. Why are we leaving this place that I love so much? I climb mango trees. There was every imaginable fruit in Durban that you could find because it's tropical. And we're leaving this beautiful little valley that I was born in. And I learned later that it's because we were on the wrong side of the street and had the wrong color. And so we lost our family home and then went to a new area completely and started again. More than 3 million people were moved in this way, removing what they call black spots because there were people of color living there. So yes, it, it shaped my, my, my childhood. It also made it really difficult for, for me growing up because everything was segregated. 
You know, we had schools for Indians. We had areas in which group areas acts. We had racial classification in every sense of the word. And, and it was legalized and institutionalized. You know, I was telling you, Paul, that, you know, even the Indian Ocean, which, uh, you know, my ancestry, my great grandmother came to South Africa in the 1860s as part of indentured labor. That means almost being a slave to work on the sugar farms of South Africa. So, you know, I'm the fourth generation here today. And uh, I grew up in a, in a country where I couldn't even openly go into areas of the Indian Ocean, as you know, during apartheid. So this shaped me very much and of, of course made me a really angry young man because <clears throat> wherever you turned, you were challenged by a sign that says, non-whites not allowed. <clears throat> Sorry. So, you know, growing up, of course, there was a great deal of anger. And a lot of this anger that I see today amongst young people, because they do not trust anyone. They do not trust business. They certainly cannot trust big pharmaceutical companies if they're falling down and dying after, after this COVID injections. Uh, or they're facing injury because they had to take an injection that they didn't really require because it was so minuscule, the risk of them of mortality in catching COVID. And now all of the science, the true science is emerging. So by the time I'm 15, I take into a meeting because I'm the youngest of seven children, eight if you include the, uh, on, my mother, on my father's side, and uh, I was taken by my, my brother to a meeting with Steve Biko in a crowded church hall, which I can almost imagine like it happened yesterday. Uh, and but 15 years ago was a long time ago. So, uh, you know, and I remember this, this, this church hall was so full, packed with people, but surrounded by the police. And there's Steve Biko, a charismatic, young medical student comes out and uh, as important in my life as Mandela was in the generation of my father. So, and you know, his words sort of bring back to me what we are experiencing even today, that the mind of the oppressed is the main weapon in the hands of the oppressor. And I see today, we as human beings, our minds, our ability to think, to reflect, to make decisions about informed consent about what we put into our bodies is being taken away. It's a freedom. It's in fact the most basic of freedoms. And so I think like in those days when I was 15, the words that gel in my mind is we have nothing to lose today, but our chains. And so, yes, it is my second bite at the cherry, which actually is a great honor to be engaged in two monumental struggles. One, one of the greatest struggles of the 20th century to end institutionalized racism and the political miracle that put Nelson Mandela into power in 1994 as the first democratically elected president. And I think today an even bigger struggle because we face an apartheid on a scale that is global like never before the way in which people have been censored, ridiculed, demonized. And often we see this as a preparation for ruining their reputations. 
ruining their job possibilities, ruining their business prospects, because it's a form of intimidation. It's a form of coercion. It's a form of instilling fear into people. But freedom is the freedom from fear, the freedom from want, the freedom to the basic right that the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights says that I am a human being and I have the ability to think, to be able to examine the, 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 the scenarios that presented to me and to make the right choice for me. That's the meaning of informed consent that comes out particularly important out of the Second World War, where medical experiments were also conducted, that were illegitimized and almost criminalized. But here we are today on the scale of the whole of humanity, we have been made part of the first global medical experiment. That cannot be right. You have mentioned something that's interesting to me because here in this country, there has been a very strong denial that there have been serious adverse events uh, caused by the vaccine and that all of these mysterious deaths of young people tend to be coincidental, strange coincidences. And there are large numbers of people, even educated people in this country who cannot believe that that could possibly have happened. Uh, and yet you speak with authority as our doctors do to say, wait a minute, the VAERS data and other data coming from around the world uh, says this could not possibly be a, you know, a strange coincidence. This is the kind of thing that you don't see unless what is the one thing that happened since 2021 that would cause these graphs to scoot up like that, um, to shoot up like that. And so is it common knowledge in South Africa that people have been vaccine injured? Is it something that is uh, spoken about well, and even reported widely? Or do you just have knowledge because you're very savvy and very politically well-connected? Yes, so Jay, she has a really good question. You know, you speak to the average American in this country, it seems like they have blinkers on and they're absolutely not aware what's going on around them. Um, they're completely isolated from reality, much like many people maybe in South Africa were completely oblivious to what was going on. So it's a good question. So, you know, how, why is this happening? And is this an American phenomenon or is this more of a global thing? Well, Betsy and, and, and Paul, I mean, Certainly, this is global because there's been almost a conspiracy of silence around the issue of vaccine injuries. Uh, and uh, the mainstream media have been part of this complicity because, you know, even the big social platforms, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, all of these major tech which I call big tech, big pharma, big politics, have all been in bed together. And I think that's why you know, there's more and more breakdown of trust. So the implications of what's happened in the last three years has broken down trust. And when trust breaks down, 
the social consensus breaks down. So yes, I think that the, the you know the fact that the people who we thought we could rely on, our governments, the medical regulators, our doctor, Paul, when I was growing up, if you remember those early days, the GP, the general practitioner, was the pillar of the community. It mm. was the person that people went not just with their medical problems, they went there with all their problems and he would spend, I remember a doctor's coming to spend time at home an hour at a time, just sitting and listening to things that are not related to his job. How many doctors are trusted today? And the fact of the matter is that the most of the doctors I've spoken to have not taken the vaccine, and, but they're too afraid to lose their jobs. My mother-in-law you know, suffered a heart attack. She never had heart problems after the first Pfizer shot. And then a second shot, she has another, you know, a, a more serious heart attack. She's unable to even look after herself, bath, eat, change herself, or do anything that she, she could do before that. And she used to walk two or three kilometers a day at, you know, and she has this heart attack. And my, my wife has to leave the family here in South Africa to go there for seven months because the government said they want to put her into a state-run state hospice. But my, my, my wife said she's going back to take care of her mom. Seven months. She restored her to health. And when she sat down with the doctor and asked him what could be the probable cause, because my mother has not had heart problems in her whole life. And he said, the only conclusion to get come to is the vaccine. But he said, I cannot write it down because mm. I will lose my job. Now, this is the level of intimidation across the world. When people who are barely surviving are told they will lose their jobs or their medical license to, to be able to practice, like very much like you know, the attempts against you, Paul, then they, they, they live in fear. So the pandemic, rather than educating us and making us part of an approach that tackles a huge pandemic, made us live in fear, broke down families, even within my own family. We cannot have a family gathering because this issue divides us, setting brothers against brothers, sisters against sisters, parents against children or children against parents. We've created so much of division then the psychological and mental challenges, almost PTSD on a global basis. I see my, my, my we had a birthday for my four-year-old grandson. The first time we could do it in four years to have a birthday party. So what are we doing to the family unit and the learning difficulties of young people forced to wear masks that do not work? So all of these accumulated Paul brings me to a conclusion that we are facing the imposition of the greatest tyranny humankind has seen. And it's done with our permission. And our, our, because we are afraid. So in South Africa, yes, it's the same situation. But South Africans, Paul, you know, you know, to be honest with you, we think one in three, 30% actually took the vaccine because millions of doses had to be abandoned. And mm -hmm. now, you know, 
And I think that's the, the, the South African psyche. If I don't believe in it, don't get me. And I'd rather just keep quiet or buy a certificate. You know? So, you know, I'm a one that says, when there's an unjust law, break it. And I think that's what many people have done across Africa. You know, the levels of this COVID injection were very low. And perhaps yeah, that's I think South Africa and Africa. Yeah, I think South Africans and Africans are prepared to stand up for what they believe in and to stand up for the truth. So do you want to speak about the family unit? Because I think the family unit is so important in, in, in our life these days. And you know, you, you you reflected really on your on your mother, the influence she had in your life, and it really touched me because I I was very close to my mother, and she influenced me. And I think that mothers, particularly with their sons, have such an important role to play in 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 this society. And I think one of the worst things that we've seen is family units being broken up. You know, I think, like you, Paul, that mothers are essentially the pillars of our family unit. And, you know, of course, as a trade unionist, I've fought for the right of women to equal pay, equal, you know, uh, equal work, uh, the rights of women. But I think the issue of the role of women and mothers in particular must go beyond that, because it's about respecting the fact that men and women are different. Women have a very different role in society in holding the family together, in giving life. You know, I don't think as a man, and I've, you know, I've been very involved in, in my children and particularly my grandchildren. I'm learning a whole new world, Paul, through the eyes of my grandchildren. And I'm, I'm enjoying my childhood again. <laughs> so I, you know, I find that you know, what we must understand is the respect for women who bring life, who bring a vibrancy, who bring us the social cohesion, the protection, the nurturing. And, and I think that's not often understood, you know. So when I explain to people that my, my mother was responsible for all the values I carry deeply embedded in my heart, you know, first of all, it couldn't be my father because he didn't carry me for nine months and he didn't breastfeed me and change my napkins particularly because he was born in a completely different era to what I've been born in. And so, yes, mothers are vital and the role of mothers are critical. And so my mother taught me the most essential values I have, you know, that in life, she said, my son, remember that we are here to celebrate the fact that we have come into this human experience, that we have been given the blessings of everything from the air we breathe to the water we drink to the food that grows up from the earth. These are the blessings of something greater than what we are. And so even if you look at the question of faith, which is what we need today, faith, not talking about religion, faith, faith and the belief that there's something greater than us. You know, there, there, there is this greater spirit, the divine grace, that has made us and given us this human potential of free will, free will, Paul, and the ability to make choice across a spectrum of being either loving or hateful or fearful, to being tolerant or intolerant. And the 
the, the, the power that we are given is to exercise that choice in a way in which we get to a greater level of consciousness. And that le greater level of consciousness is to going down from the, from the mind, cesspool, which is what gives us our survival instincts. But we're not in the mode today as civilization of in a fight or flight anymore. We should have graduated from that to a greater awakened consciousness of the interconnection between everything that exists, the forest, the river, the ocean, another person, you know, what divides me and my wife? My wife happens to be French Canadian. There's a handful of genes. Overall, we are only one human race. We are not, the, you know, the idea of race even is unscientific. It's a social construct with real, real implications, but it's a social, it's not a, it's not a science, but it's lived in our lives for hundreds of years. So I think that our, my mother taught me that we are all little streams, rivulets that come down the mountain into streams that join this great river that leads us to an ocean of humanity, that ultimately we are all from one. And I think that's what unites us. That's the humanity, but the way in which the pandemic has been impl implemented has divided us and broken down the family unit and created huge distress in families that we are only going to see in generations to come. That cannot be right, Paul. Yeah, so I think it's this loss of humanity, this loss of caring, this loss of loving each other. You know, the, the, the care we have for fellow human beings is what's divided us. And I think that's what we can use to unite us. I think, you know, the question is, how can we, what can we do to overcome this awful tyranny? And I think if we care for each other, if we show concern, if we show love, that we can start healing and we can work together rather than working against one another. You know, we need to understand each other. We need to speak to each other. We need to communicate with each other. And I, I think that's the way we we succumb this terrible oppressive force that we're facing. Um, this is this is like an apartheid. It's breaking us apart. It's it's or it's more like some kind of a military force that's saying you will do this, no exceptions. That's it. Boom. And we don't care who the individual is and what your needs are and what your body needs. Boom, you're going to take this and that's it. It's Jay, what do you think we need to do to, because, you know, this is, as you say, a global tyranny. There's some really nefarious forces at play that are trying to, you know, break us down. And so, you know, you faced this before. <laughs> You know, what do you think? How do we overcome this? How do we unite? How do we move forward? And how do we reclaim our humanity? Well, I think that the most important thing now, Paul, is to have compassion. And, you know, I'm reminded of the day that Nelson Mandela walked out of prison, Victor Vester. You know, the 20th century most known prisoner of conscience walks out. And of course, the first question people asked him is given the tremendous sacrifice of not having seen 
his children, his grandchildren, people, members of his family that died in 27 years, um, was, is there revenge in your heart? And Mandela's uh, response was particularly unique to him and uh, part of the Mandela magic. And he said, if I walk out with even an iota of revenge in my heart, I would still be a prisoner. So I think the first thing we need to do you know, is, is that, to show compassion, even to those that hate us. Because there cannot be any replacement of love. And what does Mandela do? He holds out his hand and he says, calls the clerk, then the president of the national party that put him in jail for 27 years. And he calls him a man of integrity. And it's, it's, so it's the question of leadership now is what we need. You know, I think many people vaccinated and even those that have been virulently, you know, uh, you know, denying any vaccine injuries. You know, I've been unfriended publicly on Twitter by people I've known for 20 and 30 years because of my stand. I don't hate them. And at some point, I hope I can have a conversation by them, with them, but I'm not, I've drawn a line in the sand and saying, you know, don't cross this line. This is my point of view. So I think what we need to do now is exactly what you're doing. We've got to inform ourselves. We've got to educate ourselves. We've got to build unity around a set of very important principles. So if you take the whole struggle against apartheid, Paul, you could put it into one sentence. One person, one vote in a democratic, non-racial, non-sexist South Africa. Now, if you were a housewife, and this is what actually happened in the way the anti-apartheid movement became global. And in spite of our governments, people in South Africa and people in the United States, Canada, Europe, everywhere in the world, India, Africa, held hands together. It was people to people solidarity that brought our governments into line and allowed a, a moment you know, around you know, 1990 created a moment where we're able to rise above our constituency and our prejudices and our perceptions and our assumptions and find the common ground. That's what we're looking for today, Paul. What is the common ground? And it means that we have to put everything under the microscope. How does our healthcare system perform? Is it adequate uh, to what we need as humanity? Has it been compromised? Has the teaching in medical schools been compromised so that we are producing really high played salesmen of drugs that big pharma is, is selling? A crisis been manufactured in order to extend the marketing opportunities to pharmaceutical companies? These are questions we should be asking. I think today is the time when we should question everyone and everything. You know, I've been referred to Paul as, uh, you know, as hanging out with right-wingers now. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> if talking about freedom 
you know, is now some being politicized. I've said to people, I don't actually believe in political parties. I don't believe in left and right. I believe in right and wrong. And I think that's the new politics that we need. Can we build a platform of principles and values that are cross-cutting across every culture, every, cult, every nation? Because we've lost trust today. And so I think we're rebuilding this in the way that you're doing in this conversation and often outside the ambit of what we thought was the fourth estate, that their job was to inform us, to educate us, to give us true journalism, not censorship and then you know, misinformation and then on their principles deciding what is right news or not right news, what is true science or not true science. I think this is where we are at the moment today. And I think it's a critical moment, Paul and Betsy, for all of us. It's beyond biological, it's beyond race, it's beyond cultural or, or whatever other issues that have divided us in the, in the past. I think today we have to unite around a single thought. What does it mean to be a human being? That's the question. And to preserve humanity, to do, do good to other human beings. And you know, what you said is so important because particularly in the US, we live in a divided country. It's very political, it's left or right. And in fact, it shouldn't be left or right. It should be right or wrong. We shouldn't be divided um, you know, along political lines because the virus doesn't divide, disease doesn't divide. And so we should unite as humanity just to be doing what's right rather than what's wrong. Just one last thing, which um, our listeners may be interested in. I believe that South Africans are taking on Pfizer. Um, is this is this a correct rumor? Well, it's not a rumor anymore, Paul. I think a case has been lodged arguing that the procedures and the authorization given to Pfizer uh, has been uh, misrepresented and in conflict with our constitutional rules. It argues that the vaccines uh, of Pfizer are both unsafe and ineffective. And so the case is about taking those shots off the market. So it is, um, it is about setting new boundaries. We, I think we're the first country in the world to do that. Yeah, so uh, just to interrupt you, it's astonishing that this has to happen in South Africa. That, you know, I mean, so the, the, the light again is on you and your country and I should say our country because we can do what's the right thing. Why can't the rest of the world wake up? Uh, it's astonishing. So I must, you know, what a country. Well, is yes, there a chance uh, that that can happen? Remarkable. Well, you know, we're facing an uphill battle. <laughs> I mean, first of all, the news has been, you know, uh, not covered by the legacy media. Yeah. Uh, journalists have been told that they're not to touch this. Yeah. So there's been more publicity about the case that has been taken up here than the, in the global environment than there is in South Africa. But, uh, you know, social media is ablaze with it. And, and I think that, you know, in the debate that we've been having, 
it's been really interesting because more and more people are participating in it. This is the way in which we're gonna get participation of people in understanding not just the rights, but knowledge about all the different you know, uh, drugs that are on the market, the role of the pharmaceutical sector, the way in which you know, some of the opioid crisis that you see in the United States. You know, we see this globally. In fact, it's today probably one of the biggest killers of people is, is opioids given to us by the pharmaceutical companies. You know, if you look at the history of, of economic sectors, I mean, the pharmaceutical industry, which now claims to be the savior of the world, have had a, some of the greatest criminal lawsuits in the world of any company. So, and, and I've been watching the news because, and it doesn't come on mainstream media, but even people that have been part of Pfizer, vice presidents of Pfizer, are talking about how they didn't take the Pfizer shot because they didn't believe that this is authentic. So I'm saying that the questioning is starting, the tide is turning, and South Africa, of course, has always been a bit of a trailblazer, but unlike the United States, we don't have a government forcibly coercing people into it or taking it into schools, even though there are attempts to do it. There will always be these attempts. This is the whole reason why the WHO is you know, announcing and negotiating a new treaty, a new treaty that basically takes away our right to sovereignty, not just over our countries and lawmaking in our countries, but taking away our rights over our own bodies. Now, if you talk about freedoms, Paul and Betsy, I mean, this body is mine. What's more basic? Something (laughs) by by a divine grace that I've come into this, surely I have sovereignty over my body. Isn't that most basic fundamental premise of humanity? Yeah. So if, if I'm going to engage you about what I want to put into my body, I need to have all the information. But what do the pharmaceutical companies do? They say, well, first of all, we want immunity from, my, from your government, that I cannot be prosecuted for side effects. The second thing, I want all of this data stored and hidden for 75 years. And the third thing, you know, I, we cannot, you know, I want the right to continue in spite of the fact there's evidence, in spite of the fact that Pfizer in its own documents said that there are potentially 1,241 side effects. Now, anecdotally, because this is the situation that we have to look at, in my own family, I see injuries all around me that coincide and correlate to some of these side effects. You know, myocarditis, if you take it, you know, explosion of cancers, even though people have healed from it. Uh, There's so many neurological problems, people that cannot even walk anymore, people that are paralyzed. And I think all of these things bring us to a point. Isn't the right thing to do 
pause, particularly not put it into our children who have a minuscule risk of dying of COVID. Minuscule, I think it's 0.03% chance. Why enforce it there? When the evidence is saying that there's something happening that we cannot explain about the rise in all case mortality, why do it? So is it political? Has science been taken over by politicians and big corporates, particularly in the pharmaceutical sector, that we don't have any choice? And the removal of choice, the removal of informed consent, and the, has, I think it, what it does, it erodes the foundations, the cornerstones of democracy, freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of assembly, the right to protest the right to have our views held. And I think this is why I say this is a civilizational issue, Paul. This is what we face today, a civilizational issue. It's not a health issue anymore because science has been subjugated to interests of corporates around profit or politicians. No longer the Hippocratic oath, which is do no harm. And the patient is the most important part of the healthcare system and the patient rights should be respected. We'd love so to get a couple. Yeah, yeah, we've got some questions. <laughs> we've got some good ones. Some questions for Jay. Um, yes, please. And we've got, uh, a, we've got a couple of people asking basically the same thing who are saying, you know, one is, um, First of all, Eric Smith points out you're an excellent speaker, deeply enlightened man. I joined late, so may have missed something, but he says, I'd like to ask you to comment on the low rate of COVID in Africa, and why do you think this is the case? Is it the low vaccination rate, the widespread use of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine for malaria and other things? What do you think? Yes, that's a really excellent question, you know, and I would uh, I would certainly concur that Africans, uh, largely because we are African, we're excluded from the global uh, vaccine market, and therefore we had very little access to, to vaccines except the more developed countries of Africa. So actually, I think that was a blessing. <laughs> so, <laughs> So, I think the divine grace was looking after us. <laughs> so I think that's one. I think secondly, it's that remember that Africa has also been the laboratory for testing of drugs yeah. in the past. It's literally a graveyard of that testing because your most toxic drugs are usually tested in Africa. So there's a suspicion already, sure. what are you putting into my body, you know? And particularly because you seem to be coming from outside our culture, outside our country, and you're representing big interests. And so, yes, there's a hesitancy to it. I think the third element is that we are a particularly young population. Africa has the youngest demographics of any, any continent in the world. So we have a more robust healthcare system. And I think given the, uh, the lack of access to highly developed Western medicine has been a bonus to us. 
because we rely a lot on human well-being on pre-treatment, you know, standard operating procedures, the ivermectin or improving the access to, to zinc and to vitamin D and vitamin C and in ivermectin and hydrochloroquine. So I think that we are able to work around what is the authority coming through. You know, one of the greatest doctors, Paul, which I think you need to interview on your show is Dr. Shankara Chetty. He treated 14,000 patients. He lives in Port Edward, a very deep rural area. 14,000 patients. He went and saw them. He set up a tent outside his office, saw people in the open, started to have physical contact from the first time he heard about the COVID pandemic. And no hospitalizations, no deaths, even people who were elderly, infirm, with comorbidities, lived. And for him, it was, it didn't require a vaccine. You know what they're doing to him today? He's facing a disciplinary hearing from the, from the health medical regulator. Because he saved too many he, lives, right? He saved too many lives. Can you believe that, Betsy? He saved too many lives and he's brought the medical profession into disrepute. Paul, very similar to you. Now we must expect this. So it requires a great deal of courage to know that you will give up everything, your career, you know, your job, your income. That's the level of sacrifice asked of us today. And if you ask, why do I have to make the sacrifice is because I want my children and grandchildren and the future generations to have the rights that we fought for, that our ancestors fought for, that have created democracy. We are protecting democracy, defending democracy for our children and grandchildren. And I think that's an honorable way to spend, especially for me, my time as a grandfather and an elder. I am not involved in anything. I'm not involved in business. I'm not involved in government or trade unions or anything. I stand here before you as an elder with a little bit of experience, with an acknowledgement that my ignorance is far greater than my knowledge, but with a deep commitment, profound commitment to building global solidarity and reasserting the pathways of hope and opportunity for our children, for other, the younger generations, and for all people. I want to come back to that in one, wow, in one minute, but you. we have one other question. We'll have two questions, and the second one deals with that one. But someone else, Laura Emerson, did ask a very good point. She says, does South Africa have its version of VAERS and the yellow card reports? What, what do you think about that kind of data? Is it reliable? I think that the VAERS data you know, one of the issues in South Africa is that most South Africans have not taken the vaccine. So it's hard to get really accurate data. And yeah, just let me interrupt that. There. So yeah. what people may not know, the vaccination rate in Africa, South Africa is about 16%. So <laughs> the vast, I think so, about 16%. 16, one six, wow. 
<laughs> is, yeah. is that correct, Jay? So, in I mean, South Africa, the estimation is it's around 30%. Okay. 30 to 40%, I would say. But that includes everyone that acquired a vaccine certificate without taking the injection. <laughs> so, and I think this is a global phenomenon. I think uh, I was reading a, an article today that, uh, that, you know, many people in Europe as well just buy the certificate. They don't trust the injection. So I think that, you know, in a time of great tyranny, then there should be a response, which is mobilizing ourselves and breaking the rules. That's civil disobedience. It's our right. We're asserting our right to our human rights. And that is legitimated by the, our understanding of democracy. And so, yes, there is going to be what they call collateral damage. They will victimize people. They will target people. They will ridicule people. And then they will try to take away their means of income. We know these tactics. They've been used in the past by totalitarian regimes, by undemocratic regimes, by dictators. These tactics are not different. Yeah. Paula, you remember the time when newspapers were censored in South Africa. We never had access to the media. I feel like I'm back in that situation now. Suddenly, you know, I'm, I'm seeing deja vu. You know, wow, is this what's happening? This The last time I experienced this was in my 20s under apartheid. But it's now global. So this apartheid is now global. And that's why it is, it's pertinent to us to have these type of conversations that break through all the barriers and the obstacles to us building a global solidarity, a new tsunami of hope that we need. Well, you have come, we've come to the top of the hour and it's two o'clock in the morning where you are. So we're, we're gonna let you go. But uh, this last question is just perfect for the last question. And uh, this is from uh, one of our wonderful viewers who said, do you have any recommendations on actual concrete actions we individually can take to improve this world? Yes, I think that, uh, you know, this is a question that often comes. You know, all I can say is that when you take a decision, when Paul made a decision that his role as a doctor was serving his patients and there were pretreatment protocols that he could give that would save this patient as Dr. Sankara Chetty has done, then that individual has to make a choice. What do I do? And having made the choice, what happens? He goes out and in the first few, wow, you're very alone. Have I made the right choice? Is it the right choice for the family? Because you know that what's coming is the type of harassment that could threaten the family unit, but you still do it. Look at what you have today, Paul. Literally, uh, more than a thousand people that are participating in this conversation. We've reached a thousand people. Imagine if these thousand people talk to one person. 
and get then many more on the video. Yeah, and many more. So I think that the veil of secrecy is being stripped off and the truth is emerging. We are breaking the silence. And that's the first step. And then we are reconnecting people, people that have never lived in the same community. And I've been looking at the introductions as people started to introduce themselves from all over. You're bringing people together. You're creating a platform. You, you stand on a set of very firm values and principles. And I think this is what's happening. It's a coalescing taking place across the world that you know, basically I like to call people like yourself, light warriors. You are bringing the light to dispel the darkness. You know, and, and so this is a constant struggle because we carry that shadow inside ourselves. And sometimes that shadow takes over and we want to ensure an equilibrium now so that the shadow and you know, the angel and the demon can sort of reach a balance in humanity. You know, I think that for me, this is the civilizational issue I talked about. You know, it's, it's time for us to make choices about as individuals. What does it mean to me to be a human being? Where do I come from? Where am I going? And then how do I create a world that is based very much on compassion? on solidarity, on protecting the vulnerable, the infirm, the elderly, protecting our environment. Because that's the birthright of the future generations. And so it's happening. You don't have to orchestrate it, it's happening. We are coming together to assert the fundamental truths about our human experience here on Mother Earth. And these conversations contribute to that. Yeah, so I agree with you, Jay. I, I think that's, you know, we have to unite together. And that's why, you know, we have all our followers who are part of this wonderful family, because we in this together, you know, as human beings caring for each other and, you know, looking after each other. And I think that's how we're going to win this is, is unity together and caring and kindness for our fellow human being. Here, here. Thank you so much for staying up so late for us. Thank you, we, we hold hands with you. It's a pleasure having you here. And Paul, of course, thank you. What a, what a great night. Great to see you both. I have a few closing remarks to make to folks to know what to do uh, before next week. And uh, happy holidays to, to you. Uh, if you are celebrating, well, many people are celebrating religious holidays now. And so we... Um, we will, we're about to sign off, but you two have been fabulous. Thank you so much. Now, folks, wow, wow, wow. What a discussion. What a great discussion. Let me just pull my notes up here where I can see them a little bit better and actually look into the camera a little bit. Yeah. Yes. Wow, what a great night. And and what a wonderful world it <laughs> wonderful and strange and challenging world that we find ourselves in.
But with all this in mind, and in light of the past few years, those of us who have to go to the hospital can be even more anxious than usual. If you or someone you know needs surgery, our new anesthesia guide will help you be prepared and plan ahead. It was written by our very own Christina Maros, a CRNA, who has 22 years of clinical experience as a nurse anesthetist. It's designed to help patients anticipate and plan for anesthesia, surgery, and a post-operative stay in the hospital. You can find it on our website under COVID resources, and educational tools, or go directly to genie.us uh, forward slash anesthesia hyphen guide hyphen FLCCC. And Christina will be hosting a live Twitter space to answer all your questions on this topic on Friday, April 21st at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard. No, it's Eastern Daylight Time now. Let's bring Christina up to discuss it and all the other nurses too who answer questions behind the scenes. Although I have a feeling the questions were light tonight because everybody just wanted to hear Jay. It was uh, such an incredible talk. Christina, um, how, how are you with this? Why don't you introduce this wonderful group of nurses that you have and give us a word on, on what you're up to in your new space that's coming up. Well, so we have our team of nurses tonight, Pamela, Stephanie, Scott, and, and uh, Samantha and Emily, and um, we all answer questions tonight, but people were really paying attention to listening to what Jay had to say, because it was a very inspirational talk. So we had about 60 questions and there were still about 10 open questions for Jay. So we didn't get to all of the questions to, for Jay tonight, but um, maybe we can answer those questions some other time. And regarding the anesthesia document, we get a lot of questions in the clinical inbox about what, what can people do when they need to go to the hospital? How can they arrange for blood that's not contaminated with spike protein? We have medicines and nutraceuticals on our protocols. And if people are using our protocols, they need to make sure they communicate these drugs and nutraceuticals with their anesthesia team, because sometimes those drugs have interactions with anesthesia and medications. So this guide was written to empower people to, when they go into the hospital, to be able to know what to expect, know what to ask for, have everything documented, hopefully in a legal fashion. So they aren't put in the position where they are victimized or in a situation where they are strong armed into doing things they don't want to do. So we are going to be having this Twitter space in a couple of weeks and people can review the anesthesia guide and they are open to ask any questions they want to about the guide to me. And I would be uh, very happy to answer those questions. It would be my pleasure. Wonderful. Sounds really like good work, really good work. And we thank all of you nurses for being with us and volunteering your time this way to, to help out. Thank you so much and have a lovely, lovely holiday. Now then, speaking of wonderful nurses, folks, let's highlight our nurse of the month, Deborah Swank. She began her healthcare career serving infants, children, and young adults suffering with genetic and other chronic health issues. An international board certified lactation consultant since 1998, Deborah has provided care in lactation and infant feeding in both rural and large urban settings to over 15,000 infants and families. She is the program director of More Than Reflexes Education, and she focuses on sensory perceptual 
and motor learning and primitive survival reflexes. Thank you for all you are doing, Deborah. We are so grateful for nurses like you. Now then, our wonderful Dr. Bean just shared his 50th episode of Long Story Short, and it's a good one. In this lecture, he looks at omega-3 and exercise and how the resulting improved glymphatic flow helps reduce the risk of dementia. So make sure you check out this episode and you get your fish oil and your workouts into. You can find this and other episodes on our website at flccc.net forward slash Dr. Bean and on our FLCCC Rumble and Odyssey channels and on our Long Story Short YouTube channel. Now let's go to the FLCCC store. You know, speaking of Dr. Bean, if you look really closely at the slide coming up, you will notice that his artwork is featured on the shoes in our FLCCC store. It is springtime and our shop is full of new designs. So make sure you head over to support FLCCC store and buy that special someone in your life. And I love intermittent fasting t-shirt or these priceless don't feed the cells shoes. Now then, featured speakers at our educational conference. Dr. Bean and hundreds of you will be at our second FLCCC educational conference, which is just a short three weeks away now. Dr. Sayed Haider will be there too. He is board certified in internal medicine with additional training in functional medicine and has treated many patients for COVID-19, including many of you. Dr. Joel Walscog will also be joining us after being injured by his first COVID vaccine in December of 2020. Dr. Walscog helped found REACT-19, a, a nonprofit that offers support for those suffering from long-term COVID-19 vaccine adverse events. And we are so honored that both of these doctors will be joining us in Fort Worth. If you want to learn more, or want to reserve a seat while you still can, because we're filling up, head over to flccc.net forward slash conference. Now, our last update this evening is about our Heroes Among Us campaign, which finished last Thursday. Thanks to our amazing FLCCC army, we met both of our donor matches and raised over $250,000 towards this critical life-saving work. So thank you, thank you to the Good Shepherd Foundation, to our anonymous donors, and each and every one of you for helping us do what we do. We could not do it without you. And with that, we wish you all Happy holidays, and we will see you right here next week. Dr. Nathan Goodyear, I want to personally invite you to the second annual education conference of the FLCCC in the beautiful Fort Worth, Texas area at the Marriott Hotel and Golf Club. I'll be one of the speakers there, and so I encourage you to come together as we as physicians join together post-COVID pandemic 
to debate and discourse on the ideas of spike proteins and the emerging topics of treatment options in spike protein-induced diseases. I'm Dr. Nathan Goodyear, and I'm going to be speaking personally on COVID and cancer. Defining things such as, does turbo cancer exist? What does the evidence say? Is the SARS-CoV-2 an oncovirus? You heard me right. Is there a connection between COVID and cancer? Is there a connection between long COVID and cancer? And where are we going? And is there a good follow-up prevention and treatment strategy for those with cancer or past history of cancer that are exposed to spike proteins, whether injection or infection? So join me at the Marriott Hotel and Golf Club in the beautiful Fort Worth, Texas area on April 28th to 29th as we discuss everything around the emerging treatment options of spike protein in the treatment of diseases. I'm Dr. Nathan Goodyear. I look forward to seeing you there.
When COVID hit, we didn't wait for Superman to save us. Who needs a superhero when we have everyday heroes among us? Every day for the past three years, we have witnessed remarkable acts of heroism. People caring for sick patients, filing suits against restrictive hospital policies, fighting for medical and personal rights, and pushing back to protect our children. We all have a hero inside us, that part of us willing to act on behalf of others, with no expectation of anything in return. That voice that says, take a risk, because this is so important. Those of you who support FLCCC are our heroes. Thanks to you, we can speak truth to power. We can create life-saving protocols, and we can provide you with resources to stay healthy. Together, we're making a difference. We've saved lives and changed minds, but our fight isn't over. Right now, our doctors are creating new guidance for existing and emerging diseases. We're fighting media censorship to bring vital information to those who need it. And we're finding new and creative ways to expand our list of trusted providers. We need your support to do this critical work. Each of us has a hero inside. Together, our actions can change the world. Make a gift today and be an FLCCC hero.